0: And welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: All right, well next week I'm going to begin a series in the book of Revelation and I'm very excited about it. Uh, Now next week we're actually going to have a special guest with us. Uh, from the first century, the Apostle John. I don't know how these things work, but somehow the Apostle John will be with us and he'll give us an overview of the entire book of Revelation that the Lord sovereignly used him to write. Uh, But uh, So this week we're going to look at Bible themes you need to know before studying Revelation. So you've got two weeks to have this assignment. In the next two weeks, read the entire book of Revelation through Uh, more than once if you get the opportunity. It it, it relatively doesn't take that long to do. And uh, be ready for two weeks from now when we start going verse by verse through it. Now one of the reasons people get so frustrated in trying to understand the book of Revelation is that they haven't really read and understood all of the Bible's prophecies. And so I'm going to help you today with that by looking at these Bible themes. Now We're going to cover a lot of Bible this morning so I'm putting more verses than usual on the screen for you. But think about this, Revelation is not only the last book of the New Testament and the Bible, in a very real way it's also the last book of the Old Testament as well. Revelation has over 400 allusions to Old Testament passages in its 22 chapters. So I've been reading a whole lot of the Bible recently, Uh, try to get in about 10 or 11 chapters a day, and it's amazing how many times when I'm reading in the Old Testament I see another illusion that is brought out again in the book of Revelation as the Holy Spirit gives us the revelation through the Apostle John. When you finish reading the Old Testament, it's almost like there could be three words attached to it, to be Continued. And then you get to the New Testament, and the very first words in Matthew 1, one are these, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the word Christ is in the Greek language. It means Messiah for anointed one, the Old Testament, the one they expected to come and be the king of Israel and the savior of the world. And so the New Testament starts by saying, now we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ is not only is Jesus the Messiah, he's the son of David and the son of Abraham, Abraham the father of the Israel nation. So do you understand how significant those words are? Many people don't and so they're lost if they just jump right into the book of Revelation. There are two focal points in studying biblical prophecy. First and foremost, Jesus, our sweet Lord and Savior, the King of all. Revelation nineteen ten the second part says, "'Worship God, John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.'" And so first and foremost, the entire Bible's about Jesus, but the revelation is about Jesus too. It's to get to know the full biblical portrait of him. A lot of people think about Jesus and Christmas thoughts come into their mind, the sweet little baby that Mary rocked there in her arms.'" Or they think about him teaching, or they think about him crucified and the awful picture of him dying for our sins on the cross when he was probably uh, about a 30, 33 year old man. And then him rising from the dead with his body having been beaten and then ascending to heaven. But Revelation's gonna start out by showing Jesus as he appears in heaven and it is such a beautiful portrait of him and so revelation's first and foremost is going to round out our portrait of who Jesus is so we know who we're praying to when we're praying but second in knowing bible prophecy is and very significant is israel Israel. In Romans 9-11 through Paul tries to understand to largely Gentile Christians, Gentile Christians like us, he's largely trying to get them to understand why Israel is so significant and that there are still promises that have been made to Israel that will be kept as time marches on. And in the early parts of Romans 9 verses 4 and 5 he says, "...they are Israelites." to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, or patriarchs for fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen." So many people get lost in the book of Revelation because they don't understand these two focal points of prophecy, that it's about Jesus before it's about events, and it is also uh, fulfilling prophecies made to Israel. And so a lot of weirdos historically have gotten to the 144,000 witnesses and it makes clear these are people from within tribes of Israel and yet they make them about other things and cults have been formed about who's in the 144,000 and stuff like that. Well, the text makes clear that it's tribes of Israel somehow getting saved and witnessing during uh, during the book of Revelation times, the end times and uh, they miss that because they've already dismissed any possibility of Israel factoring into the future. Well after Matthew 1-1 the gospel goes on to make much of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus walking on earth, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ being a suffering servant, dying in our place there on the cross, rising from the dead and going to heaven. And the book of, as the book of Acts begins, it's evident that Jesus has fulfilled many of the Old Testament prophecies, but that Jesus' disciples, as much as they're glad to see Him alive and thankful that He died for their sins, and they know He, ha- they ha- he has a, a plan for their lives that's going to involve them taking the Great Commission to the ends of the earth, they're still confused. And they ask a question, and they're wondering specifically when He's going to fulfill all the other Old Testament prophecies that, prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. So in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, they asked Jesus, they say, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if there's never going to be a restoration of the kingdom of Israel, this would have been the perfect time for Jesus, who's about to ascend to heaven, to say, oh, man, I'm glad we're getting this cleared up before I go to heaven. Guys... Israel's blown it. They'll never get any of those promises fulfilled because they blew it. And so whenever you read the Old Testament now, just spiritualize the language and make it about the church. But that's not what Jesus did because he intends to fulfill all those prophecies that were made in the Old Testament times. And so look what he says to them. And He said to them, "...it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem," that's where they were, Judea, that's their country, Samaria, those next door that are a little bit different than them, ethnically, and then to the ends of the earth. So Jesus said, "...those times, those seasons, that's a coming!" But in the meantime, you, my disciples, are going to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples, and then when the time comes, when the season comes, God will pick all that back up again. What that means is we're right now living in a parenthesis of time, right? The church age, the age of grace, before God renews and keeps all the promises that he made to Israel and the world uh, in the Old Testament times. And so it's very exciting when you think about that like that. From Acts 2, when the church begins on the day of Pentecost to Revelation 3, it's all about the gospel going out. It's about churches being formed. It's about what you do in those churches and also the promise of a rapture to come as well. So uh, That's why I say Revelations, not only the last book of the New Testament and Bible, it's really the last book of the Old Testament as well because the New Testament largely talks about this age of grace we live in, the church age that we're in, where we're getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then Revelation tells us what will happen in the future after this age when all those other prophecies get fulfilled. So 10 Bible themes to know before studying the book of Revelation. The first two are going to go together and the last two are going to go together. And then there's two sets of threes in the middle. So if you like... uh, synchronicity we kind of got that for you today the first two go together the lion-like king will decisively defeat Satan isn't that good news this is a messed up world it's jacked up with sin Satan tempts and Satan has destroyed so much but the Bible makes clear from its earliest chapters that the lion-like king will decisively defeat Satan and going along with that the lamb-like sufferer will take away the sins of the world we get clear indication of that in two wonderful very early promises from the book of Genesis. So Genesis 3:15, God is talking to Satan after the fall of Adam and Eve, after sin has come into the world. And in Genesis 3:15, God says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan, and between your seed and her seed." Now, notice seed is capitalized there. Uh, women have eggs, not seed. So here we've got an early indication that something miraculous is going to happen in the future. And of course, Isaiah 7:14 talks about the virgin birth of the Messiah into the world, right? And as the promise is reiterated to Abraham and his descendants, it talks again about this seed that will come physically, first through Eve, but also then through the family line of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, and it's so neat to think about that as it goes along. Uh, Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. He's going to kick your head in, Satan. He's going to destroy you one day. That's king language. And you shall bruise his heel. Somehow you're going to make him suffer, but he's going to conquer you. So both hints are there, right? Well, now turn to Genesis 49. So we know that uh, in a moment we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to see that Abraham had a son Isaac who had a son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and one of them was Judah. Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50 is an amazing character study. We all want to be like Joseph when we read Genesis 37 to 50 and put, things in the Bible are like that so that we will want to be like the character of Joseph. But Genesis 37 50 is also answering a question that's going to get asked later on. Why is the Messiah from the tribe of Judah? And it's so neat because Judah was a rascal like some of us. And yet he did one good thing during his lifetime. When Benjamin was about to be taken and could possibly die, Judah stepped forward and said, let me take his place because it will kill dad if Benjamin dies. And so I'll put myself forward to be killed in his place if that's what you're going to do. And it's almost like the Messiah Jesus was in heaven looking down and saying, hey, that's the tribe I want to be from because when I go to earth, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the place of guilty sinners, except uh, except I really am going to die for them. And Genesis 49, Father Jacob, one of the patriarchs, the third patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, one of the fathers, was passing out blessings to his son. Some of them were more like curses because of their behavior, but he was passing out blessings. And the greatest one went not to Joseph, But to Judah, look at verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the light of the world is coming. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be like a lion, and you've got to obey him. He's a conquering king. Verse 11 binding his donkey to the vine like Jesus did when he rode into Jerusalem. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Somehow this conquering king will one day wear bloody clothes. A prophecy going all the way back to Genesis 49. And so I'm giving you for each of these... First references, and then one of my favorite references, and you have favorite references as well. I like what Revelation 5, 5 and 6 later say about this lion-like king who is also the uh, lamb-like sufferer. Revelation 5, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain, just like John the Baptist had said about Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to open its seals. We'll talk about what that means in the weeks to come. For you were slain, Lamb, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. The lion-like conqueror is also the lamb-like sufferer. And I love rounding out three chapters into the Bible after Satan messes everything up by tempting Adam and Eve and bringing sin into the world. Three chapters into the Bible, we start the record of human sin. Guess what? Three chapters from the end of the Bible, Satan gets thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation twenty ten says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Three chapters in, it starts. Three chapters in, at the end, he gets what's coming to him, and all those who remain rebels against God, also go to that lake of fire. The Bible makes very clear that he created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels, the demons, and yet where else is God going to put someone who defies him and never bends the knee to him, never turns to him for salvation? Sobering things. But the lion-like king will decisively defeat Satan. The lamb-like sufferer will take away the sins of the world. Well, now let's look at 3, 4, and 5, the covenants looking at the three great covenants God made with Israel. The first one's the Abrahamic covenant. God made an unconditional, that's key, it's unconditional. That means God's going to do it even if the human participants fail to keep their end of the bargain. God made an unconditional promise to Abraham that he and his descendants would be a blessed people, a great nation, that all nations would be blessed through his seed and that the promised land would be theirs forever. And as you go through Genesis and Exodus, you see that promise repeated scores of times. It's just over and over again. And later on, when Israel's a real mess and in need of judgment, and God's about to just kind of pull the plug on them, He says, well, there's a remnant that I'm working through now, and I'm going to keep this thing going into the future because I made a promise to Abraham that I will keep, even if individual generations don't get in on it through their rebellion against God. What a great God. First references are Genesis 12, 1 through 7. That's that great passage there. Uh, And uh, let's take the time to read it. Genesis chapter 12, such a key passage as it all gets going and it's still being talked about all the way to the end of the Bible. That's why Matthew 1 1 says that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ and he's the son of Abraham. It's letting us know he can be the guy to fulfill all the prophecies. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. Then look at verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And as as the promise goes along, As Genesis goes along, the promise is reiterated to Isaac, to Jacob, and everybody after that as well. The Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's response needs to be our response as well. Genesis 15 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when a sinner says, You can save me, God, and I am a sinner who needs saving, when you believe God, when you trust in Him, your faith is counted as righteousness. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper uh, together. This Righteousness that the Lord gives that we could never have in our own strength. Well, my favorite reference is Galatians 3 related to that, verses 17 and 18. This is what Paul wrote there. And this I say, the law, the Mosaic law, which was 430 years later than the Abrahamic covenant, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promises of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So that promise is not off the table, it continues on, even though Christ has fulfilled the first part of it by coming and dying for our sins as the suffering servant, he'll come back to be the conquering king. By the way, where it says there, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, that remains on the table as well. It's a timeless truth that if you take on God's son, like Psalm 2 talks about, or do things to hurt Israel, which much of the Bible talks about, you actually get on God's hit list and experience curses rather than blessing and that's why it's been so important to the tabernacle over the years to express our love to the descendants of Abraham as we have done through the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews many times. Well the fourth one is the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law. Now this was actually a conditional promise to Israel as it received this Mosaic Law the bottom line was Israel would experience blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. They needed to do what God said. When they didn't, there would be ramifications for that. And so God says early on, listen, if you sin and you rebel against me and you trust heathen gods instead of me as God, I will have to judge you And that will also involve you being thrust out of the promised land. Now, I'll bring your descendants back one day, but why don't you just obey me and stay and enjoy the fat of the land now? Uh, It was conditional, right? Um, but it didn't offset the promise made to Abraham of things continuing on after. But in real time, they'd experience blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The law also served the purpose to drive us to Christ because it revealed the character of God, God's expectations, His provisions for forgiveness before the Messiah came, and the need of that Savior to come. So the first reference, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 Favorite reference there would be Galatians 3, 22-25. Look what it says. But Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, it was our guardian to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come we're no longer under a tutor. The word there could be guardian, you know a child under 18 will have a guardian if their parents aren't around and that person will make legal decisions for them. When the child turns 18 they're a man or a young woman and they no longer need the guardian and the Bible compares the old covenant with Moses to the new covenant with Jesus like that. Now that faith in Christ has come we still need to by faith do the things in the Ten Commandments like not lie, cheat, steal, you know, commit adultery, etc. but those civil law aspects of the law, the things about dietary code and things like that, all of that was temporary scaffolding like to a building. It did reveal the heart of God in many ways but it's not applicable for us today uh the priestly law is the same way now that christ has come and he's been the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world right now we don't need to kill sheep or doves or goats or oxen or whatever uh, to atone for our sins and to cover over them temporarily until he came he has come and he's paid the price once for all which is so exciting so you got the abrahamic covenant the mosaic covenant what's next the davidic covenant king david right Uh, The fifth one is that God made an unconditional promise of a throne within the promised land to David's descendants. Eventually Israel's Messiah, the son of David, would have a perfect reign on this throne promised to David in the land promised to Abraham. Well, that's key there because that's why Matthew 1.1 says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, this is the guy And when you read Luke's gospel as it begins, they were very excited. Oh, if the Messiah is here, that means uh, Israel's king is here. And if Israel's king is here, then that means, it's got to mean that Roman occupation will be thrown off. Well, they were making some jumps there, some leaps there. Uh, Had they accepted Christ when he came, maybe it would have gone right to that time where he ruled on earth. But they did not, and the Scriptures in the Old Testament kind of foresee that. In Daniel 9, a great prophecy is given about the 77s, 490 years, because 70 times 7 is 490 years, 483 of which are past now, and there's one seven-year period yet to come in the future before Messiah reigns. And I know that's confusing. We're going to get into that while we go through the book of Revelation. But it is so neat because God made this unconditional promise of the throne within the promised land to David's descendants. The first reference to it is 2 Samuel 7. My favorite reference is what we sing about at Christmas. And note it has elements of the first coming of Christ as the suffering servant, but also it's got some notes there of the fact that he'll come back and be the conquering king. For unto us a child is born... "'Unto us the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, "'and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. "'Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. "'Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, "'to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, "'the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this.'" So do you remember that Acts 1 when the disciples were questioning Jesus? That's what they were asking about. Lord Jesus, when is that going to happen? And he said, those times, those seasons, they're coming right now. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then all of that will come back into play. So cool. Well, that brings us to the key Old Testament phrase, the day of the Lord. I told you where there were going to be three covenants. And then there's three next things, three looks at the day of the Lord in a part one, part two, and part three. One of the most important words and phrases in the Old Testament is that phrase, the day of the Lord. It meant judgment was coming. Now, sometimes it's God judging individuals, sometimes it's God judging nations that had messed with Israel. In Fort Worth you'll read signs that say, don't mess with Texas, Well, there's Old Testament warnings about messing with Israel. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord refers to impending judgment on those nations that had harmed Israel, like Babylon, like Assyria, etc., Edom, uh, Moab, etc., things like that. Sometimes the day of the Lord refers to God's going to judge imposters within the nation of Israel. Those that didn't have faith in God, they had faith in Baal instead, and God says, you're an imposter, you're not part of my holy remnant that really knows me. And so there would be words like that. But the day of the Lord phrase is often used in pointing to the future. And there are three major groupings of those day of the Lord passages that point to the future and they bring us right to what's taught in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way through to chapter 20. So the sixth thing we're looking at here is the future day of the Lord part 1, the tribulation. The tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist within the tribulation. The first reference to that is in the prophets they were written at different years so I've put the prophets in general there but Daniel 9 24 through 27 is such a key passage there and I've explained it in the church before we'll explain it again as we go through the revelation series it gives us an amazing timeline including the fact that that last seven years of hell on earth before the final judgment is uh, the time of tribulation Um, And Revelation 6 through 18 is 13 chapters about that. There are seals of judgment. they are not not those kind of seals. Seals that are on a scroll. And then trumpets and bowls of wrath poured out the time of the tribulation. But here's what Zephaniah 1 says The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Every time the day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's about judgment. And it is hard judgment because of human sin. Jesus said it like this, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, in that case Israel, is talking about there, those days will be shortened. They'll be shortened down to seven years total, three and a half years of very intense great tribulation. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Now I've studied the scriptures through many times on prophetic themes, and as you go through you find three things, three purposes to this seven years of tribulation. And we clearly see them in the book of Revelation as well, as it brings all these things home. The first thing that's going to happen in the tribulation is it's the beginning of the judgment, God's judgment on the satanic world system. Psalm 2 really shows the spirit of the people on earth during the time of the tribulation. Psalm 2 talks about people shaking their fist at heaven about God, against God and against his Messiah. And it shows that heart to defy God and turn from God. We know all kinds of people in our lives and in this nation and in this world that want to do life on earth without God. During the tribulation God will say, okay, try it, try it out for seven years without me helping you, without me restraining all the evil that could be without me keeping meteors from hitting your planet and stuff like that. God's going to say, figure it out on your own during those seven years. It will be hell on earth. The beginning of the judgment of the satanic world system. Secondly, it'll be a time when many Jews are saved and readied for Christ's reign on earth in keeping of all those promises of the future day uh, uh, that God's going to do in Israel and in the world. You know, I think about... um, that beautiful passage in Ezekiel that talks about the dead bones, right, the dry bones. And he says, preach to these dead bones. And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, I don't know, you know. And uh, it shows three stages of those bones coming back to life. There's a beautiful praise song that makes that about how God can save a person lost in sin, and that's true, but the passage's first application there in Ezekiel is actually for the restoration of Israel in the end times. And it makes clear, first there will be bones that are able to stand up. Like Israel's a nation now, but not a godly nation now. And then sinus will get on that body, and then the breath of life will come back into that body, and it will be everything it can be. And that's what's going to happen as God saves people, so many saved within the Israel community, and then readies them for his reign on earth. The third thing that's going to happen during the time of tribulation is it's the last chances for everyone else. Uh, The earth dwellers, the phrase earth dwellers used over and over again in Revelation 6 to 18, and some do turn to Christ, many don't. But uh, it's a time that it's the last call around the world for the gospel for those that are in that time. It's really a grace and mercy from the Lord because he could just at any moment it all be over and instead people will know, huh, things are clicking into place just like that Bible freak used to tell me about and uh, either I'm gonna repent and go to Jesus or I'm gonna die and go to the lake of fire. Well number seven is the future day of the Lord part two, Christ's second coming in his millennial reign. The first references are in the Psalms and they're in the prophets too. I particularly like Zechariah 14. The favorite reference would be Revelation 19 and 20 when Christ returns riding on a white horse and then sets up a thousand-year reign on earth. Zechariah 14 says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle, and in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah predicted, and other prophets do too, a time where the nations of the world will gather and try to fight God, and God will come and take care of them in their wickedness. Zechariah 14, 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. It's kind of neat because we're entering that fall season where the tabernacles is one of those fall feasts. And so it's something Jewish folks still do today and is referenced as a time where the nations will join in on that. What I like about the way the Bible talks about the millennium, and it is Revelation 20 that gives us that it'll be a thousand years. The prophets talk about it as a golden age that's not quite eternity future yet. What I like about it is the focus of the earth will be Jerusalem. And, you know, down in Orlando, you can go and see the Holy Land experience. And over at the Ark there in Kentucky, they're actually building a model Jerusalem, I think, and people are going to want to go there and see what Jerusalem was like. I think there's a uh, 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 a put-together of the tabernacle uh, up in uh, Bedford, right? But uh, during those thousand years, those on earth at the time are going to be able to have the ultimate Holy Land experience, which is pretty cool to think about. Well, the eighth thing is the future day of the Lord, part three, God's great white throne judgment and then going into eternity future for uh, the saved on the new earth and the lost in the lake of fire. The first reference to that day of judgment is Exodus 32. Favorite reference, Revelation 20 through 22. Listen to what it says in Exodus 32. Whoever has sinned against me, God told Moses, I will blot him out of my book, the book of life, now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, some of your translations read, the day when I settle accounts. The day when I settle accounts. When the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. Revelation 20:15 says, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire the day of the Lord, the great white throne judgment. Second Peter 3.13 gives this hope for believers. It says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So cool to think about that uh, one day God will be on earth and He'll be with His saints. No Satan, no sin, no sorrow, no persecution, no death. Instead, Perfect, godly living with Jesus with us all the time. And it's so wonderful to think about what awaits. But it's after all that judgment takes place. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the Old Testament prophets, with Israel as their focus, they looked into the future and they saw the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem at the end of the times of the Gentiles. What they did not see so much was this church age we find ourselves in. And the New Testament writers talk about this time we're living in now as a mystery. And it was left not to the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament apostles to explain both this church age that we're in, what we're to do in these churches and how we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as well as to explain the rapture that goes along with the church because it's the rapture or catching up of the church to heaven. And we'll talk about that as this series goes along as well. So these last two Bible themes to know before studying the Revelation are number nine first, the age of grace that we currently live in. And again, the apostles explained to us that we're in this in-between time. The first reference to the church is Matthew 16, Jesus telling Peter, good for you, you've got it right, you know who I am, and upon faith like this I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against it. Also we would think about the great passage in Matthew 28, the great commission taking the gospel to the ends of the age. You're going to love the references, they're some of the favorite parts of Revelation for people, chapters 2 and 3 when it talks about Jesus having a message for the churches. And, uh, and then number 10, the imminent rapture of the global church of Jesus Christ. The first reference is John 14, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and get you and bring you to myself. I'm so excited about that. Uh, obviously a favorite reference to it is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 that gives that language of rapture. Some people say the word rapture is not in the Bible, but it is. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13 says, "'I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope.'" Verse 14, "'For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do, even so God will bring him with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep.'" For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those words caught up are harpizo in the Greek language, rapturo in the Latin language. That's where the word rapture comes into English. And so this could be translated, we who are alive and remain shall be raptured to up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. We'll talk more about what that means as we go along. But I love what happens in Revelation three ten, because after Revelation three, the letters to the churches are done, the message to the churches are done, and Revelation four and following goes into the future. And in Revelation 3:10 there's a beautiful promise given. He says, "Because you've kept my promise, because you've kept my word to overcome, I will keep you from the time of tribulation coming over the entire world to test those who are earth dwellers, to test those who dwell on the earth." And that to me is an explicit promise of the church being raptured up at the end of the church age and then the day of the Lord begins. And I think one of the reasons why I believe that so strongly also is that the apostles, as part of talking about these things, introduce a wonderful new phrase to Christians, the day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is always spoken of as a time of judgment. Man, when the apostles talk about the day of Christ, they're talking about something with giddy anticipation, something that all believers will rejoice in. And they call it the day of Christ. And that includes one of my favorite verses, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so right now we faithfully serve the Lord. We want to be faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. And we aren't so worried about events because our eyes are on Jesus and he's going to rapture us out of here. Even if I'm wrong and we stay through the time of the tribulation, God will be with us and we'll get to help be his witnesses while on earth. And again, I don't think that'll be the way things unfold, but it is so beautiful to think that at any time Christ could come and get us, bring us to heaven, and then those day of the Lord things will happen. He'll return to earth, we'll return with him, and the future is in his hands. Well, I hope you're ready. Not only for the preaching through the book of Revelation, but ready to meet Jesus if you died between now and when we start this series, right? And so I hope and pray your faith and trust is in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. If that is true of you, then you can be optimistic about the future even as we understand there's a lot of troublesome things about the days we are living in. Will you bow your heads?